1: Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Nate Patron, who is the author of The Needle and the Lens, Pop Goes to the Movies, From Rock and Roll to Synthwave. Nate, thanks for being here with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Could you start by talking a little bit about how this book came to be um, and how you wanted to sort of look at music in film? Oh, that goes
0: back a while. I... I think I've always sort of had a association with music and sort of its audiovisual context for a long time. I mean, I was born in the late 70s. So when I was a little kid, MTV was the big thing. So that was a way of sort of helping me kind of initially associate pop music with these sort of uh filmic narrative uh, aspects that could kind of tie into it and then the further i got into both music and film the more i started noticing it in the symbiotic relationship that i write about where uh yeah where films use pop songs to kind of add a sort of level of atmosphere or narrative uh, irony or uh just to elevate the mood uh i like to think of it in Like, I think Ann Powers really came up with a really interesting framing Uh, earlier this year when she was writing about the Oscars. uh, She used the term best adapted song uh, because there have been so many movies, I think, like just off the top of my head, most people could name, you know, at least a few. For me, it was uh, Pulp Fiction, which came out when I was in high school. And I was like really getting immersed into being, you know, really into music and film and That was a very fascinating intersection of all these different kind of doors into other worlds. Because uh, with with Tarantino, he had this sort of curatorial aspect to the soundtrack that was very, uh, you know, uh, in keeping with the sort of reissue crazed uh, uh, sort of uh, history uh, reassessing mode that uh, a lot of music fans were in in the you know in the 80s and 90s uh, as kind of a side effect of the reissue boom of the transition from LPs and cassettes to CDs there is this huge glut of uh, new uh, well not necessarily new but resurfaced and repurposed songs that uh, kind of expanded the idea of what the musical canon could be and Tarantino just really took advantage of that um i mean we you know i went out to get the soundtrack and like i heard so many different things you didn't you didn't hear on you know top 40 or classic rock radio you know like dick dale's surf rock or you know cool in the Gang jungle boogie which was a big hit back in its day but it kind of almost been like half you know forgotten in you know the mtv era uh so Uh, So there was that, and then there's the additional aspect where I was kind of getting into, like, looking backwards at music history, uh, you know, of, of like, previous generations, you know, like the 70s, 60s, 50s, and there was a sort of a boom, and it was kind of nostalgic, but it was also sort of um, kind of a uh, in-depth reckoning with America's recent past, Uh, there were all these films in the 90s, like, Martin Scorsese's Casino, Spike Lee's Crooklyn, um, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights, Sophia Coppola's uh, The Virgin Suicides, that all, they were all like 70s period pieces. And obviously, you know, like one of the first ones was uh, Richard Linklater's Days and Confused, which I didn't see until years later. But these all sort of gave an impression through their soundtracks uh, of a vision of the past that had kind of a a compelling pull on me because it was sort of like, felt like the world I was born into and I just missed out on. So what is this like? And this, this music, the way that the songs were sort of juxtaposed in these films with the events of the films and the stories that they were telling and the drama that they were heightening kind of felt like a sort of musical education in a way that, you know, like traditional music criticism, couldn't necessarily even uh, approach. It was a uh, it was a very fascinating window into how uh, how we kind of uh, how we sort of associate uh, uh, songs with their historical contexts and how we use those historical contexts to tell stories.
1: So you have sort of looked at this, looked at kind of the ways in which um, directors have. Taken songs, taken songs that were already released um, and brought them in to tell this narrative. And I have to ask how, I mean, you have 16 different songs that you talk about and films you talk about, and then you give us a little bit, what is it, uh, 20, 25 um, additional tracks. But how did you decide on the films and the songs that be, that you wanted to talk about in your book and looking at this? You
0: know, it's very hard to narrow down. I, I, I mean, we're talking about a selection where, uh, uh, like Martin Scorsese's *Goodfellas* winds up in the uh, outro, sort of kind of honorable mentions section because there is just so much territory to cover. Although I do think that you know *Goodfellas*, of course, is one of the epochal, uh really fantastic uh, examples of it because it does something really unique in that it makes, uh, you know, the uh, the, the May 11th scene, uh, where Henry Hill is driving around under the influence of cocaine and really paranoid. And it's set to a, you know, a series of songs, you know, starting with Harry Nelson's jump into the fire and then segueing through you know, a few others like Muddy Waters, uh, Manish Boy and, uh, you know, The Who's Magic Bus. And, it, and it's put together in a way that actually feels like a DJ mix. So that's uh, that's one compelling sort of thing that really stuck uh, struck out at me. But for the most part, like the main thing I wanted to do is kind of cover as much territory as I really could, as far as uh, as far as uh, genres of film and genres of music. I wanted to you know cover art house films and blockbusters, uh, comedies and dramas, action films. Uh, and you know films that were about music and films that were about something else so uh and it's funny because i thought i'd be writing about a lot more period pieces than i would uh i cover uh, american graffiti uh and uh, 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 uh yeah. um let me see what else what else would, yeah yeah an apocalypse now is also a period piece but uh in a sense like i um sort of wanted to engage with the, uh, the films that kind of shaped music history as it happened. Uh, and in a sense, even the period pieces had a, a, a really major impact on contemporaneous uh, popular music because American Graffiti uh, arrived right at kind of like the groundswell of the reissue boom, where, uh, where people who had grown up with rock and roll were starting to think, okay, this isn't ephemeral stuff. This shouldn't be going out of print. This needs to be preserved. And that was sort of at the, uh, at the advance of a moment that also gave us you know, things like the uh, Garage Rock compilation Nuggets that came out uh, a year before. And then, of course, Apocalypse Now had a sort of funny relationship with the resurgence of the doors in popular culture because uh, American prayer... Uh, which is their sort of uh, quasi reunion album where they took some you know Jim Morrison's spoken word and added new music to it that came out in 78 when apocalypse now was still in a you know in the notoriously tortured process of coming to life and uh, Coppola who had been UCLA film school classmates with members of the Doors including Jim Morrison uh, just so happened to uh, uh, resuscitate this idea he'd had for the film, where he had initially wanted to score the whole film with the Doors, but thought it was a little too on the nose. Uh, but then, at like a low point in the editing process, where so he was just like scrambling to find some, you know, spark of inspiration, he found uh, the, you know, this. Uh, I guess it was initial just footage of the uh, of the jungle being, you know, hit with napalm. And it struck him that this would be a very, uh, very remarkable uh, juxtaposition to start a film with a song called "The End" and have it sort of be this bleak, ironic uh, kind of counterpoint. So, yeah, I, I wanted to uh, basically kind of touch on a lot of the more canonical examples, but also have enough the breadth to sort of, Uh, Cover as many genres as I could. From yeah, like like the title says, uh, from uh, you know rock and roll to synthwave. Like 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 the conclusion or like the last chapter is on Drive, which is in itself a very distinct example of the symbiosis between a film and its soundtrack, actually creating or fueling a you know, very popular subcultural aesthetic.
1: So one of the things, and you mentioned, um, so I want to talk about a couple of the films you mentioned, So um, because it sort of gets at some of the things you talk about. So one thing um, that came up in the Apocalypse Now chapter that also comes up with some of the other chapters is sort of the relationship between the artist and the film itself. And and some of the artists seem to really appreciate how their songs were used. But you talk about how when The Door saw Apocalypse Now, um, they were not impressed. Um, and they said it was completely kind of opposite of what they wanted or what their song was about. So can you talk about that a little in in your work and, and what you found with um, some of these ways in which the songs and the artists um, clashed or connected with the films that they were in? Yeah, well, the Doors
0: example is pretty interesting because they had actually met, John Milius, the the screenwriter for Apocalypse Now, who is uh, a fairly you know gung ho pro you know, he uh, pro war kind of guy, he was I like to joke that he wrote Apocalypse Now as a way to compensate for the fact he couldn't actually go to Vietnam. And in the meanwhile, the doors were on the side of you know the soldiers who had to actually deal with this you know hellish scenario and. Turned to the doors music as a form of solace. So they they had felt that, you know, their role in this uh, particular uh, context um, might have been uh, a bit distorted by some of the intent of the film. But it it still actually resonated in a way that really spoke to some of the experiences that the people who had actually gone through it uh, had uh, had went through. Uh, and then of course there is, I think the most, uh, interesting, uh, example that I want to really highlight was how Roy Orbison felt about in dreams being used in blue velvet. Uh, and that whole story was a very, very odd in that like it, it started as sort of a happenstance, uh, kind of thing because, uh, David Lynch and Kyle McLaughlin, were sort started of still in the planning process of uh, like like Blue Velvet was still in production, and they were taking a cab ride, and the Roy Orbison song "Crying" came on the radio, and Lynch was absolutely gobsmacked by it. He's like, "Oh wow, I need to find out and figure out how to actually incorporate this level of intensity into this, you know, into the into the mise en scene of my film." Um, and so he got somebody to get him a copy of uh, Roy Orbison greatest hits and, and then he, you know, listened to it and then he heard in dreams, which is like, oh, this is even better than crying though. He did later use crying, uh, for Mulholland drive, but so he, you know, he uses that song for the infamous scene with Dean Stockwell singing into a mechanics light and looking like the devil. and. <laughs> And Dennis Hopper just standing there, huffing, who knows what, and having a complete nervous breakdown. Roy Orbison sees this, and he's like, "What? What are they do? What are they doing with my music?" And so, like, he he chafes against it at first. He thinks, "Oh, this is very unpleasant." But he is something of a movie buff himself. I mean, he's a, like the kind of guy who, when he described his upbringing in a rolling stone profile, he compared it to the James Dean film giant. So he's like, you know, marinates on it for a while. And he, he realizes, okay, this is like, I know what I figure out what Lynch is doing. And it's actually pretty fascinating. And so he later, like they, they strike up this, you know, working relationship and something of a friendship where Lynch actually has a hand in advocating for, and actually being in the studio for the, um, real like the roy orbison re-recording uh session uh where like there is a rights issue with his music and that had kind of like prevented him from being able to fully capitalize on uh uh, blue velvet sort of semi-reviving his career and so lynch uh had kind of come in uh he was like he'd uh it was like, a, like, I don't know if like, a, like, it was one of those Taylor Swift sort of things It was like, okay, I need to kind of like re-record my music so I can have the, you know, have the rights to it. And Lynch was there in the studio alongside with, you know, with T-Bone Burnett and he was sort of like, hey, try it this way. Sort of like he was still operating as a director, telling Orbison to kind of channel these feelings when he was singing. And so and then this and then the music video for this reconstituted version comes out in 1987. And while it's not directed by David Lynch, it incorporates a lot of the film's footage into it. And so the association becomes pretty much indelible right up to the point where when Orbison passes and there's a tribute concert to him in 1990, it actually concludes with Dean Stockwell recreating his lip sync from the film,
1: which is great. And, you know, so, and that sort of gets at, too, when you mentioned America Graffiti, one of the things you also kind of get at throughout the book is nostalgia and the different ways in which nostalgia plays out and you kind of talk about american graffiti um in a very different way than the other kind of films that were coming up at that time and directors that were coming up at that time so can you talk a little bit about um the different ways you saw nostalgia play a role in these films and using this music um with these different directors yeah, and it
0: can be kind of tricky for me because I have uh, personal associations with some of these nostalgic touchstones. Some are positive and some are negative. I think in the case of American Graffiti, uh, I had you know, been familiar with a lot of the music in it. I hadn't actually seen the film uh, until a few years before uh, I wrote the book. And it just felt like, okay, yeah, this is you know the world as it existed before I was born. And I sort of more or less take it At face value, which is actually kind of easy to do in a lot of ways, because this film was fairly uh, revolutionary in the way that it sort of portrayed the past with a kind of documentarian immediacy. I mean, it was shot by uh, Haskell Wexler, who is, you know, very much a part of that sort of documentarian, uh, you know, dynamic world of like the late, like that kind of seeped into narrative fiction filmmaking uh in the in the 60s and 70s so you have like it feels legit even if it's basically just a reconstruction and in other ways i think when you have a uh, a nostalgia that sort of tries to narrow down the scope of a era and an accompanying sound to something of a caricature that is where it kind of feels a little more frustrating. Like, like with, with the whole synthwave scene, I think a lot of it is, I mean, I love a lot of this music just for pure aesthetics and just the way that it can kind of like stir, very specific emotional and uh, memory-based associations with very specific feelings in ways that you know no other music necessarily could. I mean, if you want to pick up a very specific neo-noir, early to mid-80s vibe, kind of going for that uh, Vangelis slash Tangerine Dream slash, uh, you know, kind of synth pop sound and sort of updating it to kind of encompass a more, you know, intense and stylized version of itself, that can work. But I think it has to be something that, actually engages with the past in an honest way and not just hey remember this hey remember this hey remember this it it sort of has to be a for at least for me it has to kind of be a a bit like appreciative without being overly romantic about it like okay yeah a lot of this a lot of the music of the 80s was cool a lot of the you know times and events that music soundtrack were not very fun so you have to kind of yeah it it has to sort of be a bit more than just looking backward through misty eyes at an idyllic childhood
1: yes which we see i think playing out with um 80s nostalgia in many ways this idea that it was very lovely when it almost wasn't
0: <laughs> yeah i mean yeah it it was and it, it, it really does kind of apply across the board to a lot of eras uh, for the most part. I think people would rather, I don't know if people would necessarily rather see the past as uh, idealized uh, uh, compared to, I mean, like I I lived through the, the 2000s and I have no idea how people are going to be nostalgic for that stretch of time because it just felt awful for, for me, but I think if people want to engage with uh, film and music in ways that sort of tell us about our past, it does have to take the good with the bad, or else, yeah, you do kind of get something that feels a little, a little hollow or a little flippant.
1: So another thing that you um, do in this, it, which I thought was interesting, and I want to use Easy Rider to talk about this is sometimes you pick songs that don't necessarily, might not necessarily be the song that most people would um connect to in that film. So with Easy Rider, you took the song, you chose the song, the pusher. And so can you talk about that, that choice to like, like select when you have multiple songs, you could probably select um, um that song that you select or why you chose those particular songs to really focus on.
0: Well, that's a good question, and I think in a lot of ways, part of it was just because, you know, yeah, the most famous song, obviously, is Steppenwolf's Born to be Wild, and I think the story of how that song uh took off through Easy Rider and then was later repurposed over and over and over again until it became kind of a embarrassing cliche might be kind of a interesting tack to take. I mean, it was used in so many terrible comedies throughout the 80s and also one incredibly amazing comedy uh, lost in america which completely deflated the mythos of the whole born to be wild rebel rebel biker with you know just one well-placed middle finger uh but the pusher really stood out to me because it actually feels a bit more apropos to where the movie stood at that point in time because like this is just before manson uh it was like the hate ashbury summer of love had started to kind of curdle into a, a a sort of disillusioning moment where it turns out oh that people just wound up becoming drug addicts and dropouts and people weren't sure like where you know, America was even headed, it kind of felt like a a precursor to everything we're dealing with now. You know, there's so much intra and intergenerational conflict. And by, you know, within a year of Easy Rider coming up, people were basically coming to the conclusion that the counterculture was basically on its, uh, on its last legs. It had been you know, so demoralized and disillusioned by you know Manson and Altamont and Kent State and the Hard Hat Riots, that uh, the succession of films that kind of tried to capture that that buzz of Easy Rider were also like very bleak and existentially uh, like uh, like they they all kind of picked up on that one pivotal uh, line. Uh, you know, we blew it. That was the kind of uh, animating factor for a lot of the uh, sort of post countercultural New Hollywood films of the early '70s. Is we ha- we were on the brink of something and we lost it. And the pusher really does feel like that kind of delineation point because it draws a line between like the the sort of promise of counterculture. Oh yeah, you you have you hang around the smoking grass and feeling like yeah you have uh, you have some sweet dreams and you're you know kind of like opening your eyes to the greater world but then you know the flip side to that coin is that if you wind up taking the gateway drug route then that promise basically deteriorates into a living nightmare so yeah that's that's one of the things that really kind of stood out to me in that soundtrack is the sense that it well it really is the and and, and it's also the first song to actually um play in the film it segues into born to be wild but it's also sort of like a portent almost
1: so another like another uh, film I wanted to talk about, because another thing you do and, and you said this before is kind of use these sort of films and songs to talk about sort of the larger um, culture at the time in music, um, in sort of social spaces. And so um Crush Groove and King of Rock. Can you talk a little bit about how you um, sort of use that, for example, to look at what hip hop was doing, sort of hip hop culture at that time, and also sort of the large, right? So it's not only the film, but also what's going on with um, Def Jam Records and kind of thinking through that positioning in, in the history at that time. Oh, that was such
0: a strange movie to revisit because uh, it was such a, it, it, it kind of had to straddle a couple of different really difficult lines that it couldn't quite pull off. Uh, and I think that the thing that stuck out to me, and obviously this is, you know, with the help of hindsight and retrospect and also you know knowing maybe a bit more about, you know, hip hop history than... You know, most people in 1985 might, uh, you know, just casual audiences. But the fact that this is a film, the kind of positions run DMC is these scrappy underdogs trying to make it. And it comes out like literally months after they perform the song that they're trying to break through with. they You know, King of Rock, they perform that at Live Aid, you know, to a crowd of like dozens of thousands of people and it's like and so it sort of tells this odd parallel alternate universe version story of their come up that's that feels almost at odds with the actually more interesting version that they could have told and once i picked up on that i like the seams really started showing i mean i don't want to be a big cinemasins sort of pedantic, oh, they got the lore wrong, sort of nerd about things. But on the other hand, when you're watching a scene that it's like a fictionalized version of the King of Rock recording session, and you see Rick Rubin playing himself, who wasn't there in place of Larry Smith, who was and is kind of a now undersung figure in hip-hop history, you kind of wonder, How could have this been told differently in a way that might have still been a fun, compelling, fictionalized story while also being a bit more true to its source material? And there's so many different strange blurrings of history and fiction throughout. For instance, yeah, it's it's the story of Def Jam, but it's not the story of Def Jam because the label is called Crush Groove. And the guy who is supposed to be Russell Simmons isn't Russell Simmons. It's Blair Underwood playing an artificial version of Russell Simmons, whose whose life story has kind of been embellished into this weird Hollywood version where there's like love triangles involving Sheila E. for some reason, who is, you know, shoehorned into the film because... uh, (laughs) I mean, she's more of a Minneapolis sound person, but she's also on Warner Brothers and Who's Putting Out the Movie. There you go. So yeah, it is one of those things where you kind of want to love the movie because it's, you know, it has all these great songs and all these all these legends. Uh, Like, oh, yeah, there's Curtis Blow. There's the Beastie Boys. There's the Fat Boys who, even though they're kind of they sort of hijack the movie for half its length and kind of are sort of a disjointed focus for part of it that kind of make the narrative a little, uh, a little off kilter. And so it's like, Oh, it's a crime drama, but it's also a wacky comedy. Uh, I mean, even despite all that the film did succeed in just making hip hop actually seem exciting to a audience outside of the, you know, core you know, New York and uh, you know, maybe Los Angeles, uh, uh, kind of, uh, uh, settings where it had really been, where it had really taken off. Like it had, it had made it, like it, it was just successful enough that Columbia records noticed and it was like, okay, well, we'll pick, we'll pick up Jam and distribute them. And so in that sense, the film did what it was supposed to do. Uh, it just did so in a way that feels very, very strange. But at least in the sense that I think the actual history of hip-hop kind of won out over the Hollywood ver- version in this way, it is it is kind of something that I, I don't want to get too upset over. It's, it's just funny in a lot of ways. <laughs>
1: um, so you also mentioned that you don't only look at sort of more... Um mainstream films you also look at some older films some films that are art house films and so let's talk the first film you talk about is um, Scorpio Rising and he's a rebel can you talk a little bit about um, that choice as uh, a film to use the sort of first film right it's in the 1960 early 60s and sort of sort of that's where you kind of start this narrative can you talk a little bit about that and that choice
0: yeah, well, I mean, there are other examples of pop songs that have been used before. Uh, I mean, Rock Around the Clock for Blackboard Jungle is probably the most well-known one. You know, there are like the apocryphal stories of, that I think are actually probably confirmed, but of, you know, audiences completely losing their minds uh, when the song comes on, just tearing up movie theaters. But Scorpio Rising is where I wanted to start because... It was one of the first films to really use this relationship between film and pre-existing pop music in a very transformational sense i mean for one thing scorpio rising really does kind of count as the first sort of feature length music video uh, i mean well it's not quite feature length it is you know it's what is it roughly it's it's under an hour i think but it's but it like the music is literally the only soundtrack to the film. There's no sound effects, no ADR, no dialogue. It's just a you know loosely connected narrative, impressionistic narrative of you know a biker going and hanging out with his biker friends and doing uh, things that uh, Kenneth Anger saw as uh, fascinatingly erotic in a uh, sort of in an inadvertent sort of subversive way and using that to kind of create an entirely new sort of juxtaposed narrative about rebel culture, religion, the occult, uh, 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 homoeroticism and using the pop songs of the era or the recent, like, or the very recent past. It was mostly like, like late fifties, early sixties. So either contemporaneous or very recent and kind of. And I, and it's like this is music that is generally associated with teenage girls, uh, who are the people who are buying a lot of the records back then, uh, and especially the singles that were you know hitting the charts. And so using that as a sort of uh, way to kind of channel this erotic charge, and also sort of examine the power of youth culture and juvenile delinquency, and uh, and the idea of pop music as a form of rebellion is one of the most, uh, I think pivotal things that, yeah, it, it really is one of the first. It's, it's the spark that lit the dynamite. I mean, Martin Scorsese himself uh, pointed it out in an interview, like he, when he saw it in film school in the late sixties, he's like, I didn't know you could do this, that you could actually take pop songs and just, put them in your movie and actually have that sort of symbiotic relationship that completely changes the the context of the song and the film. And so yeah, that was like the real uh, it was a real catalyst.
1: So on the sort of other end you also looked at um because I love Elliot Smith, I want to talk a little bit about The Royal Tenenbaums, right? And and that use and, and sort of um how sometimes it's a little too no you know on the head you kind of talk about so can you talk about needle in the hay and um sort of elliot smith and the use of that song
0: well i think the thing about the way wes anderson uses music in film has kind of been divisive for a long time i actually like dropped in a quote from will Oldham the uh, you know, indie folk artist who basically just completely used Anderson as an example to completely rail against the entire concept of using a needle drop in film because, oh, I know this song and it takes me out of the narrative. So that's, and the fact that Anderson's tastes have a kind of a very distinct, specific kind of, I guess what you could call Indie slash twee slash British invasion slash artisanal. Like, yeah, he was one of those guys who got, you know, some of the worst blowback when everybody decided they hated hipsters. So there is this, there's this, but there's this pull to the way he uses music that has a sense of like that, the, that the, uh, that there is still a very, palpable emotional sincerity to all the songs he picks I mean there's not really much you know I mean there is I think maybe some underlying irony to in itself in a kinks song or a who song but people really connect to those songs you know especially when you know they're they're songs that were you know a few decades earlier and other people might hear them as nostalgia but Somebody like Anderson might hear them as a just more direct, very, you know, not even like attached to a place in time, but just to a very specific feeling that, you know, all the questions of, uh, you know, nostalgia and whose generation this song belongs to just kind of go out the window. And it just feels a bit more like a direct aesthetic thing that you can sort of perpetuate for a while. But in the case of Elliot Smith and Needle in the Hay, that really does stick out in a way because it's one of the few songs on the soundtrack and one of the only songs on just about any Wes Anderson soundtrack that was roughly contemporaneous with when the film took place uh, or when the film was when, when the film came out. Uh, I mean, most of his period pieces are also you know contemporaneous, but like this is like the modern day almost intruding on this milieu and the royal Bombs is a film about people who like peaked when they were young and are trying to kind of reconcile and reckon with the fact that that peak is over and they don't know what to do with their lives anymore and the fact that the scene where richie uh uh slashes his wrists and it's set to a contemporary song does have uh, a certain thematic resonance in the film that really does kind of lay bare a lot of the other uh, a lot of the other things that you can kind of hear thematically in the way that anderson uses this music as a way to kind of uh you like to kind of ring pathos from his aesthetic I and mean, it's not just you know, a twee whimsy cool hunter You know, I found this in a vintage shop and it looks neat. There is there's an actual sense of memory and loss to all this stuff that uh, that you kind of have to watch for and and uh, and really take in.
1: So the other I want to ask you about one other sort of film and song that you use, because I have to since all things punk, I must talk about. Um, (laughs) So can we talk about Repo Man? (laughs)
0: <laughs> yes, we can. Uh, right off the bat, Simple and jerks. I make yeah. Right off the bat, I make a point of this is like this. It, it is kind of a cheat in that this isn't quite a needle drop. It's actually a re-recording, but I wanted to kind of focus on it because it really does get to a sort of very it, kind of a sort of an overlooked aspect of. Uh, the film's place in punk culture, because as much as I love a lot of punk rock, I think it was kind of a scene that had sort of passed me by already by the time I was starting to really get into music. Like like Nirvana were my high school band, and you know, people like 10 years older than me who came up through the punk scene, a lot of them were not impressed with them. They're like, oh, no, it's been done. This is corporate, whatever but i think for repo man and my my perspective on it is one of the interesting things about this film is that it's one of the best punk films ever made and it's about somebody who gets disillusioned with punk uh i think like punk in like circa 84 was still kind of a going concern but a lot of things happened circa 85 86 where a lot of the uh, you know, a lot of the pillars of the scene were kind of falling apart. I mean, D Boone of the Minutemen died in a crash. Uh, the Dead Kennedys were, you know, caught up in legal limbo because of the H.R. Uh, Giger poster that came with their album Franken Christ. Was, you know, went through a whole obscenity trial. A lot of bands were just really starting to get burned out. Hardcore was sort of becoming a bit more overbearing and a lot of artists were kind of trying to turn a bit more towards different forms of punk like americana and you know like like roots rock and you know then then you know the nascent transition away from what we call you know post-punk to what we call indie rock you know bands like rem and you know yola tango were starting to get their footing around then but i think it's it's funny that like yeah, this the circle are show up as a lounge like a cheesy lounge band playing, you know, one of their songs, uh, which is a sort of an ironic kind of uh goof on in the social safety net. You know, uh it's it's sort of like you know, it sounds kind of simultaneously like a parody of and a parroting of Reagan-era Jeremiah's against quote unquote welfare queens, you know, 10 kids in a Cadillac standing in line for welfare checks. Let's all leech off the state. Gee, the money's really great. You know, that kind of sardonic sentiment. And it comes in a point of the film where Otto, the protagonist, has been repossessing the cars of people who can't afford to pay for them. And so and so he's listening to this band doing a really cheesy lounge version of a song about making fun of poverty. And Otto's just like, I can't believe I used to like these guys. So it it feels like a very astute sort of look into how punk was kind of starting to sort of uh, of lose its edge. And I mean, now punk nostalgia is really overwhelming in ways that kind of feel hilarious in an are you kidding me kind of sense. I mean, I'm pretty sure everyone in Blink-182 is older now. Than the Rolling Stones were were when people were making steel wheelchairs jokes about them in the 80s. And it's it's pretty ironic how a genre that critics assigned this philosophical existential duty of destroying everything overly reverent and pompous about rock music has kind of become this sacred cow genre in itself. Uh, And I mean it makes sense in a way because there will always be entry-level musicians with more intensity than chops and that dynamics given us like a lot of completely incredible music, and it still does. But, yeah, it, it really does feel like a, I mean, it is one of the situations, though, where sometimes you have to, you know, get somebody from inside the scene to, you know, to make fun of it. I mean, Quincy and Chips, their approaches to punk rock were not, you know, they didn't stick because they were hilariously clueless and, kind of going on secondhand caricatures of what the scene was like. I think repoland feels so effective because it does feel like, yeah, a product of punk rock critiquing itself
1: so you have about what like forty some odd songs in here. are there um and films in here? um are there ones that you wish you could have added that you didn't? Are there other films that you're like, this is a, this is another great example that people should know about that's not in my book?
0: So many. And I mean, uh, I have contributed to articles uh, previously. There are a fair share of, you know, website listicles that kind of cover this turf in short form. And I contributed to, uh, one that was put out by uh, the Dissolve, the late lamented uh, film website, and that uh, had a bit of a crossover with Pitchfork, who I was freelancing for a lot at the time. And there were a few different uh, examples that, uh, like for instance, uh, one I one I wrote about was uh, in. Uh, oh, actually, hold on a second. I need to I need to kind of double check. Okay like City of God was the uh, was the one that uh, I had to kind of cut at the last minute and felt bad about for the book because that's a very fascinating kind of cross-cultural uh, moment where it's, it's a scene where, I mean, the movie takes place in Brazil and it's a period piece in the late 70s and there's just a scene where it's a huge dance and the the big like the big floor filler the big you know the big anthem that people really go nuts over is bachman turner overdrives hold back the water and it's it was a very like striking thing to realize oh yeah this canadian aor band had a big hit in brazil how did that happen and so it was kind of a uh way of sort of uh looking at you know, these unexpected cross-cultural things that I didn't necessarily might not have known about because, I, you know, it was a different part of the world and a different culture. But then you see, like, oh, yeah, this is, this is, yeah, of course it makes sense that, you know, people would like this because it just, it was just a very, like, it was, this scene was shot in a way that made that energy feel extremely upfront and and very you know very uh very tangible
1: so so we've been talking a while and you had your book came out but been out maybe uh around a month um so is there anything else you're working on or anything you want to promote with the book uh what's your you know what is going on now that you want to talk about or share
0: well i've uh I mean, it's been kind of tricky times for for cultural freelancers for the last few years, um, but I've been uh, still writing about music. I uh, write for a uh, a sort of music discovery uh, website called The Shuffle, uh, SHFL, and it, it's a really good, uh, really good group of uh, writers there, and we like to kind of go in deep on maybe some of the more overlooked uh, corners of pop music, like for instance, one of the things I wrote most recently was sort of a uh, look into uh, the uh, Norwegian substrain of house music that they like to call space disco. And while that might sound like a caricature or a parody of like a weird, you know, niche interest genre that, you know, some Williamsburg goofball might make up. It's actually the kind of thing that, you know, really, know, yeah, uh, that really necessitates kind of like a, a deep dive to kind of put it into the context of how how scenes sort of uh, develop. So that's one of the things that I really like to examine is sort of unexpected juxtapositions, uh, surprising new uh, kind of contexts for uh, genres and songs. And that actually was sort of carried through uh, from my previous book, uh, "Bring That Beat Back: How Sampling Built Hip Hop," where I uh, went in deep into you know, that, that sort of sample culture and how that really kind of changed the fortunes and the contexts of a of a whole lot of different uh, a whole lot of different uh, artists between generations. So yeah, as far as future projects go, well, I'll, you know, I'll still be freelancing and I'll still uh, uh, try and figure out how to finally get my Substack off the ground. I've been, you know, meaning to do something like that for a few years, but uh, yeah, it, things do feel kind of open-ended, but uh, yeah, there's always, you know, something brewing at the back of my mind. So we'll see how that goes.
1: Nate Patron, who is the author of The Needle in the Lands*, pop goes to the movies from rock and roll to synthwave. Thanks for talking with me for new books and popular culture.
0: Uh, and once again, thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure.